If you've been here for, uh, for our little series on the life of Israel's King David, you'll, you'll know that uh, quite a few, we've had quite a few gloomy topics, haven't we? And I don't want you to check out this evening because you think, oh, another gloomy topic. Light is coming, happier stories and happier subjects are on the horizon. Christmas is almost here. Um, but don't check out just yet. Don't check out just yet because there are important lessons for us here as Christians in the valley. In the valley of the shadow of death is what, what, how David would put it. So I, I want you to stay tuned for a couple more weeks as we kind of plumb the depths of, of the valley of David's life. <clears throat> I want to read a paragraph from a book that I've been reading recently. Uh, and the book is called, it's a, it's a book by C.S. Lewis, and the book is called A Grief Observed. Uh, C.S. Lewis, if you, if you don't know who that is, that's the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, very well-known author. Well, well, Lewis got married at the end of his life to a lady who had been previously married, and then soon after they were married, she passed away tragically of cancer, so it was a very short marriage. And he wrote this little book called The Grief Observed uh, as a kind of a journal of processing his bereavement. But what I actually want to read for you today is from the introduction that is written by his son-in-law, the, the son of his, sorry, sorry, not his son-in-law, the stepson, the son of his bereaved wife. He writes the introduction to this book, and Lewis's stepson says this. <clears throat> I have always wanted to, <clears throat> I've always wanted the opportunity to explain one small thing that is in this book, and which displays a, a bit of a misunderstanding by Jack. Jack refers to Lewis. Jack refers to the fact that if he ever mentioned my mother, I would almost seem to be embarrassed, as if he had said something obscene. He did not understand, which was very unusual for him. I was 14 when mother died, and the product of almost seven years of British preparatory school indoctrination. The lesson I was most strongly taught throughout that time was that the most shameful thing that could happen to me would be to be reduced to tears in public. British boys don't cry. But I knew that if Jack talked to me about mother, I would weep uncontrollably, and worse still, so would he. This was the source of my embarrassment. How terribly sad and shameful that it would be shameful to express grief or show grief. No one can really escape, escape grief in this world. Even if you try to suppress the outward expression of grief, grief is just, it's universal. A parent grieves over the death of a child. A child grieves over the fading memory of a parent. The aging person grieves the loss of health and energy and independence. Many people grieve, all of us grieve lost opportunities. And even removing it from ourselves, we grieve when we see the pain of others. Even this week as I was preparing this talk, my phone lit up with just a simple notification, 12 gunned down in a restaurant in California. But what should we do with it, grief? Suppress it? Ignore it? Wallow in it? Well, I, I don't want to come to you today as, as someone, I, I haven't, I've experienced only a little grief in my life, okay? So I'm not really, this is not, 
coming, this talk about grief today is not coming from the depths of my own experience, but thankfully we have the opportunity to look at someone who is well acquainted with grief in the life of David. And we'll be, we'll be navigating that story in cha- uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going today so that you know where we're going in the next 25 minutes or so, okay? So first what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the story of, of uh, 2 Samuel 1, what's happening, this, this grievous story for David, and then we're going to specifically look at grief, and we're going to look at five things we can learn about grief from David's life, okay? So we're going to tell the story, look at grief, five things we can learn about grief from David in this passage. But first, let's set the stage, okay, in 2 Samuel 1. David has been promised the kingship in Israel, right? But he's not king yet. So we have this tension throughout the story. A guy named Saul is the king, and Saul is still the anointed one of God. And, and Saul has been trying to kill off David for nearly a decade now. But in the fa- final chapter of 1 Samuel that we covered in the previous weeks, okay, the Philistines, this great enemy of, of Israel, has an epic showdown on Mount Gilboa, this big mountain in Israel, has an epic showdown with the Israelites. And the Philistine army, these, these seafaring people from the coastland, absolutely crush the Israelite army. It's a devastating blow. Saul the king is killed, and Saul's sons, particularly Jonathan, David's dearest friend, is killed as well. So 1 Samuel ends on a sorrow note. But if you've been, you know, carrying on with this story, perhaps you're thinking, there is a glimmer of hope here, isn't there, for David? I mean, David has been promised the throne, but he's been on the run from a bloodthirsty and manic king for about a decade. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, Saul's death is bad and all, but maybe it means safety for David, perhaps even the throne. Let's walk through this story in 2 Samuel 1 to 1.16. 2 Samuel begins just after the death of Saul. David and his men have returned home from uh, home to Ziklag, and of course they've returned from this rescue mission. They've rescued their family and their wives and, and all their possessions from the, the Malachite raiders. And as he gets home, he's maybe sitting on the porch, and he sees a, a messenger running towards him from the battlefield, of course, with news. The messenger looks tired. It's an 80-mile journey from the Gilboa to Ziklag. And he, as they see him, he's got all the appearances of sorrow. His, his, his clothes are torn like they should be if you're in a time of sorrow. There's dirt on his head. The messenger arrives, catches his breath, and then bows down to David. Maybe he thought this was a bit strange. And the news is bad. Israel has been destroyed. The king has been killed. And David, your closest friend, Jonathan, has been killed as well. For some reason, David's a bit suspicious at this character, though. And and so he does a little bit of interrogation with him in verse 5. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? So so the messenger tells him the story in verses 6 through 9. We'll see. It just so happened that I was on Mount Gilboa on that day, David. And, and, And Saul was, we're in the midst of the fighting, and Saul was just near death. And so he called out to me to kill him. And so I took his life. I killed Saul. And if you want some proof, here, I've got some proof for you. I've got the, the royal crown and, and the royal bracelet. I took it from him. I'm giving it to you here, David, my lord. It's, it's yours now. 
Now we know this, mes- this, this messenger's story is fabricated. Because in 1 Samuel 31 that we just read from, the narrator of the story tells a very different story of Saul's death. Saul, in utter desperation, takes his own life on the battlefield. So the torn clothes and the dirt on the head of the messenger, it's a big sham. It's a big show of grief. The messenger's not grieving. He's positioning himself in a place, he's positioning himself with his news to, to kind of get a position in the, this next government. David, here, I'm here, your loyal subject. I killed your nemesis. He thinks David will welcome the death of his greatest enemy. This guy just admitted to killing the king, the Lord's anointed. So what's David going to do? Well, you just read it, so you know. First, he asks him, he wants to make sure, if he wants to make sure this guy wasn't acting out of ignorance. So he goes, where are you from? You know, maybe if you're an outsider, then you wouldn't know. But the, the, what, what the response is that he's, he's the son of an Amalekite who immigrated. It doesn't say that, but the word there used is for someone who is immigrated and living in Israel. So he is guilty as charged. He knew what, that he was taking the life of the Lord's anointed. And David is not playing that game. David will not build his kingdom by murdering the Lord's anointed king, even if Saul was his greatest enemy. He's not going to do that. So David doesn't take this lightly. He gives this messenger the capital punishment. David says that the Amalekites' blood be on his own head. That messenger did not get what he was expecting. His grief was a show. Now, I wonder if you noticed that I skipped the center of the story. You can go to the next slide. This story that I just told in verses 1 through 16 has what we call a literary shape. It's shaped like a V, as you, a sideways V, as you can see on the screen behind me. This is called a, a chiasm, okay? We don't usually talk about these, but it's a well-known structure in, in ancient literature to kind of help focus the story. And when the writer uses this, story, this structure called a chiasm with that kind of sideways V, you can see the center of the story is right at this. He, he's using this structure in order to tell you that the most important, most important part of this story is right at the center of the story. And what do you find at the center of the story? An outburst of grief from David. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and they wept and they fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for all the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David's reaction is visceral. Grief kind of erupts right in the middle of the story. He grabs his clothes and tears them, and then his men do likewise. They wail, and then they weep, and then they starve themselves out of grief for Saul and for David, and really for all of Israel, don't they? Okay, but why? Why is grief at the center of the story? I think it's because of this. 
Grief in the Bible is the good and the right response to a broken world. That's the main point of our talk tonight. Grief is the good and right response to life in a broken world. Israel's king is dead. David's dearest friend is dead. Israel's army is on the run. God's glory has been diminished. God's enemies are gloating. The world is broken, and the narrator wants us to know and wants us to see how David responds. Grief. So why is grieving right? Not just why is it, but why is it right? I think that's because you are called, of course, as image bearers of God, to represent God. And we worship and we represent a God who grieves, as Rob said in his prayer earlier today. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we read the words that God regretted making Saul king. Now that word regret carries this idea of, of grief. God God doesn't just, okay, God doesn't wish he could have a do-over. He doesn't make mistakes. That's not what he means when he says he regretted. What he means when he says is that he grieved over the fact that the king of Israel, the person who is most supposed to represent God on earth, is leading Israel in devastating sin. In the book of Jeremiah, God is presented as one who weeps over Israel's sin and weeps over their destruction. Then you have Jesus, who who grieves, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, who, of course, grieves over the death of his good friend Lazarus, knowing full well he's on his way to go and resurrect him. Why, Why would Jesus grieve for a man that he knows he's about to save? Because grief is the right response to death and brokenness. Even when we know the end of the story. When you grieve over life in a broken world, you reflect the heart of God. Friends, listen, listen carefully. Grief is not the absence of faith. Okay? Let's, let's be crystal clear about that. Grief is not weakness or faithlessness. Grief is an acknowledgement that life is not as it should be. Th- there's a danger, particularly for Christians, particularly for Christians, like like I do, and I think many of you do in here, believe that God is all-controlling over every bit of the... He is the king on the throne, and nothing happens without his either doing or permission. And, And people... So, for us who believe in God's control, and us that believe that God is always good to us no matter what, there's a danger for us that we think our grieving is a denial either of God's sovereignty or of his goodness. It's not. When we encounter bereavement or loss, acting like the loss doesn't hurt you doesn't honor God. Indifference isn't holy. Godliness is not coldness. Read the Psalms. The psalmists are anything but emotionless. The the joy is glorious and the weeping is severe in the Psalms. So pasting on a smile on your face doesn't make you content or joyful or particularly godly. You know what? It just makes you out of step with reality and inauthentic. 
So grief is the good and right response to life in a broken world. And so we see in this passage David's grief featured in the remainder of chapter 2, Samuel chapter 1. Verses 17 through 27 is David's poem of lament over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. And I want to quickly give you five lessons about grief from this passage. Okay, so first, grief is controlled and thoughtful. I should say, I should say, some grief is controlled and thoughtful. In verses 11 and 12, right, we encounter a sudden outburst of grief from David. It, the, the, the sorrow is fresh and it's intense. And that's good and right. But here's the thing about grief. It abides. Yes, time will slow the intensity of the pain, but the pain remains. We all encounter that. And this is why we need to, le- we need to learn how to grieve in a regular and thoughtful and controlled way. The Bible gives a name for this regular and controlled and thoughtful grief. It calls it lament. Read verses 17 and 18 with me. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. One commentator said that this lament is one of the most beautiful pieces of of, of Hebrew poetry that we have. It's crafted carefully, symmetrically. Whereas in verses 11 and 12, David is just bursting out in grief. He's emotionally vomiting all over the place. And now, he's thoughtfully taking pen to paper. He's carefully crafting his sorrow so that it will be memorable and beautiful. He wants it to be learned, and he wants it to be taught, doesn't he? He, he intends this for this to be taught to the entire kingdom. The, lament is a form of grief that is rehearsed and repeated. Did you know that there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to grief? What is it? So you can really answer. Lamentations. That's our next slide. There you go. There will be a prize for you at the end. No, I'm just kidding. One of the features of the book of Lamentations is that it's actually an acrostic poem. You can see in the next uh, slide here. Now, that might not mean much to you, but an acrostic poem is an alphabet poem, and what that means is it's structured in this way, so that every line is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You kind of get the A to Z of grief in the book of Lamentations. Now, why do you think that would happen? Why would someone structure a poem, a lament poem like that? I think there's two reasons, okay? On the one hand, to demonstrate that grief has been explored fully, comprehensively. It is the A to Z of grief, okay? It's not just slightly looked at. It's, it's explored to the depths. But the other reason is to show that there is an end. There is a terminal point to this grief. Lament sets limits to grief. So we find in biblical lament an expression of grief that is both controlled and comprehensive. Now, now why does it, okay, that, that's interesting, Luke, little tidbit. Why does it matter to learn, why, why does learning how to grieve in this regular and controlled and thoughtful way matter? 
Here's why. Because we often respond to disappointment or loss or bereavement in, in one of two ways. On the one hand, sometimes the loss and sorrow, it utterly crushes us, doesn't it? It devastates us so thoroughly that we can't work or eat or talk or love. Our, our devastation then often turns to angry, and we're, we're angry at others. We're angry at the doctors. We're angry at God. Sometimes we're even angry at the person we've lost. The Bible offers us a way to grieve regularly and to fully explore the pain. But then the poem ends. Zed is spoken and finished. It's as if the Bible is teaching us to weep and to wail over a broken world than to walk into the bathroom, turn on the sink, splash some cold water on our face, look in the mirror, and say, God is on the throne. There's another reason we need to learn how to lament. Because not only does grief often crush us. We often respond to a broken world with indifference, don't we? Oftentimes, we're, we're not naturally grieved by sin and loss. You, you see this as when you're on the motorway, and, and you, know, you know there's an accident, a horrific accident on the other side, and, and everybody on the other side of the, of the motorway you know, stops to kind of gawk on the way through. And what do we do? What, what, we're, what we often do is we, we, we want to look, but there's some fascination with seeing the the pain on the other side of the motorway. But we, we, we quickly want to glance at it, and then we want to block it out of our minds. We don't want to plumb the depths of grief and pain and brokenness. It's as if we want to see it, but, but then kind of shield ourselves from it, don't we? Friends, we, like, like we must train ourselves to learn a musical instrument, we have to train ourselves to grieve over sin and death and brokenness, too. And that's where lament helps us. This is one of the main reasons we, we gather to worship every Sunday. We, we gather in order to learn and to practice lament. That's why we pray, we, we pray together as a group. That's not just to fill the time. That's not simply to do, simply out of tradition. We pray together, and hopefully, hopefully when you hear these prayers, you're praying with us over the, the loss and brokenness of the world confession of sin, which is simply lament over our own sinfulness, isn't it? We gather to sing songs of lament. Friends, if you, if you avoid singing, if you, if you avoid at all costs singing songs for the weary soul, you're not going to know how to grieve, and you're not going to know how to help others grieve. If your Christianity is only happy, clappy Christianity, you're going to be living a pipe dream. And people will be walking in the back of that, that church every Sunday, and you won't have a clue how to deal with them. Because we come here to sing joyfully and sing sorrowfully because we worship a king who is triumphant and a man of sorrows. We gather to hear preaching that laments. That's the product of this series, isn't it? It's been a lot. We need a break from it. But we practice it because sometimes grieving over brokenness doesn't come naturally to us. 
Second, that was the longest one, so quick from here. Second, grief doesn't boast. Second lesson. Read verses 19 and 20 with me. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. So the word there for gazelle simply means glory. Well, it's, it's, it's a double meaning. It means gazelle and it means glory as well. So it's as if he's saying the glory of Israel is lying dead on the hills and, and the Philistines are overlooking the, the diminished, the dead glory of God and they're rejoicing and they're gloating. And this grieves David. The gloating of the Philistines over the death of Israel's king and the diminishing of God's glory absolutely grieves David. He knows that in, when this happened, the streets of, of Gath, the capital city of Philistia, will be celebrating death and brokenness and the diminishing of God's glory. But grief doesn't boast in brokenness. Grief displays a broken heart over broken people. Does sin grieve you? Or does it amuse you? Does the pain and suffering in our world bother you? Point number three. Lesson number three about grief. On the flip side of that, grief honors others. It doesn't boast in brokenness. It honors others. Verses 23 and 24. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold, how the mighty have fallen in battle. So verse 22, David honors Jonathan and Saul as mighty, strong, skillful warriors. And in verse 23, he honors them in society as those who are loved and admired. But let's not forget how significant it is that David is honoring Saul in his death. If there was ever a time for someone to gloat over the death of another person, certainly it would be here for David. Saul has despised David. Saul has tricked David. He has ruined the last decade of David's life. You would expect David to say, finally, that guy got what was coming to him. He was a brutal man, and he had a brutal death. God be praised. That's what you would expect. But he doesn't. In fact, David is very careful to paint a picture of Saul that is colored by the lens of Jonathan, noble Jonathan. Let me show you. There's a, there's a few ways he does this, but I'll just give you one. Although he praises Saul, he actually focuses on Jonathan. Verse 23. In life they were loved and admired. In death they were not parted. Now, that's an incredible statement. They were not parted. But it's really an incredible statement about Jonathan. Here's why. Let me remind you that, that Jonathan loved David. He, he told David, you're going to be the king. Not me, not my dad. You're going to be the king. And yet, Jonathan, knowing full well that his father's days were numbered, he remained loyal to him. He even died next to him on the battlefield because he realized although his days were numbered, he would still be anointed king. 
And he did that, even knowing he, God would bring his kingdom to fulfillment through David. So David's lament deliberately focuses on honoring others, even the morally bankrupt other, like Saul, rather than exploiting their deficiencies. Grief honors others. Lesson four. Grief expresses love. Verses 26 through 27. This is the climax of David's grief. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. <laughs> David astonishingly claims that the grief over losing Jonathan rivals even that of the grief over losing a spouse. Th there's not a hint of sexual intimacy here. It, Honestly, it's sad that our, our, even myself, our 21st century ears, we hear this kind of statement about Jonathan and David's love for one another, and we, we just assume there's sexual overtones. That, that's honestly more a product of our, our failure to understand what the beauty of deep friendship, unlike you would have in the ancient times. They had a, a much greater appreciation for deep friendship in ancient times. But here's the point. The deeper the love the deeper the grief. The greater the love, the deeper the grief. And we have yet another reason that it is right to grieve. Grieve, oh, sorry, grief is simply the expression of neighbor love, which is, of course, the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How, how do you love your neighbor in loss and even in death? Grief. So we've seen four things about grief. Grief is controlled. Some grief is controlled and thoughtful, regular. Grief doesn't boast. Grief honors others. Grief is an expression of neighbor love. But finally, we will not understand. Friends, we will not understand how to grieve rightly. If we don't grieve through Gethsemane. The last point. Filter your grief through Gethsemane. Now that's going to need some unpacking, especially if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. We can't learn about grief from David without learning about grief from the one to whom David points. And Jesus, the greater son of David, the greater king, the greater son of David, he also grieves. But the difference with, David, with Jesus is that his grief is like none other. We read about Jesus, we encounter Jesus' grief in Mark, chapter 14. You don't need to turn there, but Jesus is on the precipice of betrayal and death in Mark 14. And he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane in order to grieve. He's not simply, sorry, Mark says that, it, he notes that he's disturbed. And Jesus is distressed. He, he even grieves to the Father. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Jesus knows he is about to experience loss. But he's not just worried about the loss of life. His grief is not over simply about physical death. His grief is over the fact that he will be forsaken by his father. 
this eternal and perfect union between the Father and the Son will be broken. And it's, it's, it's causing in Jesus extreme, excruciating grief. Grief so intense that it causes him to, to bleed as he sweats. And he asks the Father in his grief, Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup of wrath from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' grief is real. It's painful. But the most important thing about Jesus' grief is that it's our grief. Jesus was experiencing our forsakenness on the cross so that we wouldn't be forsaken. And he was experiencing our death so that death wouldn't defeat us. You see, the unique thing about Jesus' grief is that his grief actually provides hope for a grief-stricken world. His grief provides hope for a grief-stricken world. Christian, the final lesson about grief is that you must filter your grief through Gethsemane. And what, what does that mean? That means that, one, you're never grieving alone. The one that you worship is one that grieves with you. That's what makes your, your grief different. You don't, you don't grieve alone. But secondly, it also means that you don't grieve like the world grieves. And that, that is the most fundamental difference here. You don't grieve like the world grieves. All your grief is surrounded by hope. Hope that the brokenness of this world will be reversed by the cross. You see, worldly grief is hopeless grief. That's what worldly grief is. And it's no surprise, friends, that worldly grief often turns, what, 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 worldly grief often ends in denial or in hatred or in utter, absolute, hopeless depression. Because for the world, grief is the end of the story. Death has the final word, and life is all absurd. Not so for Christians. Not so for Christians. Oh, we do grieve, and, and it is right that we grieve, but we grieve with the hope that resurrection life is the final word. So let me leave you today, tonight, with these words from the Apostle Paul that he gives to a church that is grieving. And he wants them to know how to grieve well. He says this to the church in Thessalon Thessalonia, chapter 4, verse 14. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who has no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so, we, and so we believe that God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. Let's grieve like that. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask you that you would help us know and understand that grief is right and it is the good response to life in a broken world. Teach us how to grieve. Help our hearts not be calloused or hopeless. Help us to humbly grieve 
Help us to honor others as we grieve. And Lord, let, let our grieving express our love for our neighbors. But Father, more than all of that, help us to rest all our griefs in the substitutionary grief of your Son. May we take all our griefs and filter them through the grief that he endured for us in the garden and then on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.